This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. There's no easy way to tell you this, but politicians are coming for you. They could turn up at any moment. Stay alert. Keir Starmer making a big speech today. (laughs) What a New Year treat that is. I wonder if his dad is a toolmaker. And Rishi Sunak could be coming to a street near you. We're told he's going to get out and about and speak to voters direct. We asked today... Does the let Rishi be Rishi strategy stack up? Before that, our columnists Manveen Rana and Matthew Syed on the post office scandal, which is gripping the nation all over again, thanks to that ITV drama. And don't forget, if you like what you hear here, you can join me for Politics Without the Boring Bits live on Times Radio, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. Now, we begin with some breaking news. A major capital letters, big news story. Yes, thank you, Michael Gove. Now, you'll remember that at the end of last year, thick as mash, spudge you hate, former Tormoy MP and vaccine scaremonger Andrew Bridgen parted company with Lawrence Fox's Reclaim Party, citing a difference in the direction of the party. Well, the Guido Fawkes website has got the scoop. <laughs> Yeah, apparently, Andrew Bridgen borrowed the Reclaim Party's company car before Christmas to do a bit of constituency work. Then, Lawrence Fox called Andrew Bridgen and asked for the car back so that he could pick up a Christmas tree. Andrew Bridgen said no, according to Guido. Uh, Lawrence Fox said he'd report the car to the police as missing or stolen if Andrew Bridgen didn't give it back. Andrew Bridgen said no again and then resigned from the party. Well, Guido Fox is calling Carmageddon. Andrew Bridgen uh, tells uh, the Guido Fox website he's grateful for all the help the claim gave me over the nine months. Thank you, baby. Uh, so there we are. That is the uh, the big news about what Andrew Bridgen's world. He quit the claim party because Lawrence Fox wanted the car back so he could pick up a Christmas tree. And now some showbiz news. Yes, the nominations for the Oscars are announced in just a couple of weeks' time. And we have a late entry for Best Actor in a Role featuring an MP playing himself. We've just heard from Bob, who is independent, that you have not. You are the head of the organisation. Will you provide the information, yes or no? This is the first time that I have been asked for this information. Yes or no? I am not aware. Will you provide it, yes or no? Yes. Nadim Zahami on the telly box last night in Mr Bates versus the post office. Nadim Zahawi playing Nadim Zahawi. I thought he was quite good. It's quite convincing, isn't it, Nadim Zahawi? I just hope he pays his tax if he got a fee. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, it's Thursday, so of course we are joined by Manveen Rana, host of the Stories of Our Times podcast. Hello, Manveen. Hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I noticed you've avoided coming into the studio, so we haven't got any nice snacks. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm sorry. Next week. I know. I we know. We all try to be healthy first week of Jan. <laughs> uh, and this week's Matthew is uh, Times, the Sunday Times columnist Matthew Side. Matthew, how are you? Good morning. How's Happy, it going? Very good. Happy New Year to you. Um, now, much. Keir Starmer has been uh, making a big speech this morning, his first uh, of the year, setting out how Labour is a party of service with a plan, he says. He wants to end the, the mood of despair in the country. And it strikes me that he's, he's trying to slightly dial up the, uh, the mood of optimism. Uh, not least because when he was at Tony Blair's Centuries Dad Fest thing last year, the Tony Blair Institute's you know big uh, conference. He spoke to Tony Blair, and he was contrasting the mood uh, for this election with the mood in '97. The mood then was one of growing optimism. That song, "Things Can Only Get Better," that's not the position <laughs> by a long shot. So suggesting that things might get worse didn't seem very good. So this morning he's been speaking in Bristol and uh, and tried to be a bit more hopey, changey. To truly defeat this miserablest Tory project, we must crush their politics of divide and decline with a new Project Hope. <laughs> not a grandiose utopian hope, not the hope of the easy answer, the quick fix, the miracle cure. People have had their fill of that from politicians over the last 14 years. No, they need credible hope, a frank hope, a hope that levels with you about the hard road ahead. That's when I heard that. I wondered if Frank Hope was a Labour candidate standing in a in a key seat. Um, uh, what, is, it, is this hopey, changey enough, Manveen? Um, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to hear Keir Starmer and his particularly sort of flat voice talking of Project Hope and thinking everything's about to get much better. Um, I I think, to be fair to him, though, the difference between his run-up to the election and Tony Blair's is the underlying state of the economy, isn't it? I mean... He's sort of more in a position uh, of sort of Cameron, um, you know, the first time he, he got in when, you know, there's austerity coming and there's only so much you can promise. You know, you can talk about a sunny uplands, but you don't really know when they're coming. And, and really, your best bet is to criticise what the person before has mm. done. Whereas with Tony Blair, there was a sense that the economy was already getting better. It was turning and they were going to come in and sort of feel the fruits of this. And you've, you see it now in the dilemma where... You know, we've heard that Labour in their sort of hopey, changey way have been thinking about introducing tax cuts, but then also knowing that everyone, everyone knows that's not really possible right now. So any politician of any of any party, whether it's the Tories or Labour, talking of tax cuts just feels slightly irresponsible. We've just you know, we've been through the Liz Truss era. We know where this ends uh, and we know where the economy is. So I think it's quite difficult for him to be hopey, changey knowing that actually whoever wins the next election is going to be in for, for quite a tough time. I mean, Matthew, I suppose there's a balance to be struck, isn't it? Because you think if, if even Keir Starmer can't sound that enthusiastic about a Labour government, you sort of think, well, you're the one who's supposed to be all upbeat and optimistic and other people can sort of temper that. Well, I, I think, I mean, it's interesting. I was just reflecting as Manveen was speaking about the build-up to 97 and it was... It was an unimaginably different geopolitical uh, context. Uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall had happened a few years earlier. It was an age of cheap fossil fuels. Uh, America and the Western Alliance at the height of its power. More countries were becoming democratic. It felt like the future was liberal democracy and sustained economic growth driven by cheap energy. Um, that was largely an illusion, I think we can now see. Fossil fuels uh, started to change in terms of their price and, and volatility not long after. Um, that has led to the need for an energy transition, which is causing all sorts of uh, global instability. So Keir Starmer, in a relatively small island off the Eurasian landmass, a rainy set of islands, trying to navigate a path through this raging uh, geopolitical context, it's very difficult to chart a course because the the asymmetric shocks that are going to impinge upon Britain are going are gonna to be there. Ukraine, war in the Middle East, there could well be a war in uh, the Indo-Pacific. And I, and I think the, the instability in Africa is going to increase. So, I, you know, I hate to paint a gloomy <laughs> picture in, in this first... Uh, visit to your show in the new year but um 
it's it's a very tough road ahead, I think, for for the world. And I haven't even mentioned Trump and potential meltdown <laughs> in America. There are no sunny uplands anymore. <laughs> that's sort of the problem. Yeah, but yeah. Is, is, I suppose it, it, it's that's good for us to like to say as as commentators to sort of lay out the lie of the land. I just wonder whether. Ultimately, Keir Starmer isn't a commentator. He's got to try and motivate people to go out on whatever sunny spring day or miserable autumn morning, depending on when the election comes, um, to motivate people. If he, if he isn't at least suggesting that he might be able to deliver meaningful change to people's lives, then there is a, there is a risk. And people in the Labour Party I speak to, they talk about you know the apathy and a shrug of the shoulders is, is, is one of the big threats to the Labour Party, you do need to motivate people to at least think it's possible that things get better. Well, if you just say, well, it's all a bit gloomy and we can't really do much and all terrible the situation, but we'll sort of do it, you know, we'll basically do the same as the Tories, but we'll feel sadder about it. Um, you, he's, a, he's got to be a salesman as well, isn't he, Mavid? Yeah, he, he does. But I think at the moment, it's very hard. If you hear any politician telling you how great life is going to be in a year's time, you instantly disbelieve it because nobody, you know, as Matthew was pointing out, there are so many challenges coming down the road. It's impossible to know what, you know, the great vision for Britain uh, in any, you know, in a year or two years or even four sort of looks like, you know, it's going to be a difficult path. Uh, all you can rely on is a government that's going to be in the best position to navigate it. And I think in terms of that, what he's trying to do today, and I'm not saying he's doing it very effectively, but what he's trying to do is, sort of, <laughs> is, is uh, I mean, I, I don't think he sounds enthusiastic saying anything. That's probably just, you know, that's probably just his voice. But I think what he's trying to set out is that I will be the most competent person to do it. And he's making it more about character than policy or where this all ends it's all about sort of if you have to choose one of us to get us to get the country through it then this is why you should pick me and you know there's lots of sort of um little digs at people who don't take politics seriously you know the 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 idea that boris johnson and cameron are only in it for for fun almost i mean this is all sort of you know don't pick the public school boys they won't understand the problems you're going through in a cost of living crisis i'm the person to do it which isn't a great sort of sense of I hope it doesn't make you feel like <laughs> things are about to get better. Uh, what it what it's relying on really is telling you that if you don't vote for for Labour, things will only get worse. And that's uh, it's not it's not a it's not an optimistic vision. It's more a it, you know it's it's more the sort of um, you know sort of nineteen twenties American. Um, sort, of, sort of evangelical priests who would go around telling you that if you didn't vote for, for you know, if you didn't support them, it was more the doom that you're trying to ward yeah. off <laughs> rather than the great sort of vision of of a fun future. Well, let, let's try and let's take off all this doom and gloom then and all this negativity. Maybe maybe it's just our age because uh, let's talk about a young man who uh, could be very optimistic about the future, Luke Littler. Uh, yes, uh, he lost last night, but blimey, what a, what what a run to get to the uh, the finals of the PDC World Darts Championship. Uh, and Matthew, you you've written about the the that moment of young, particularly in sport, young people who sort of sh seem to just shake off all of the pressure and the worries and just throw themselves into it. Emma Madakanu being another one. Um, and there's there's something about young people without all the doom and gloom that, that comes with with being a bit older. Just, just throwing themselves into it and actually seeming to enjoy it. Yeah, I, I love the darts this year. Uh, I uh, watched it with my son yesterday. My daughter had a sleepover, so she wasn't with us. But we watched the the semi final all together, and it's it's incredible. I I, I think back to being a, a ping pong player in my in my teens and twenties, and the, when I was young, I was completely fearless when it got to juice twenty all. I would go for attacking shots, not thinking about the consequences if I missed, because I didn't have any responsibility at all. Didn't have, didn't have a mortgage. Didn't have a job I had to protect. None of these things that you feel that you have to discharge your responsibilities properly as you get older. And so I took risks, and I, and I was very good under pressure. And Luke Littler, in his run to the final, he was there was a checkout in the semis, bull, bull, double 16, that I just can't imagine an older darts player having even thought about, let alone attempted. He was very close to winning last night. I would probably too much information. He got four two up. He went treble eighteen, treble eighteen, and he doubled two to go five two. He would have won, and it was right on the wire. But the other guy, I've got to say, the the guy he uh, who, who won it, 
Luke uh, Humphreys was also fantastic last night. It's it's such a great. I love the darts at this time of year. But it was. I really enjoyed your piece because the, the Emma Raducanu and actually, she, you know, she's done. Uh, I think she lost actually last night, but she's she's, she's been playing better. Uh, but the the example that you used that when she won the U.S. Open, she did it. You know, she was very young. She sort of sailed through it. She she even talked on court about how she was enjoying herself. And then along with that comes all the pressures of being brand ambassadors, and um, you, you know, it's suddenly you you've got a grown up job off court or off you know off the hockey or whatever it might be and that sort of adds all that pressure even if you you know you haven't got a mortgage you've suddenly you you feel like you you owe what you're doing to lots of other people whereas when you're young you can just do yeah. it for the love of doing it it's easy to forget why you are playing sport when when you start you you kick a football around the field not because you're going to earn money but because it's just pure joy and you're creative and you're immersed and absorbed in what you're doing and then later when uh paycheck starts coming in and you're a sponsor and a, you have a brand ambassador it can subtly change the meaning of what you're doing you know, i don't think that's just true of sport by the way you think of some of the great scientific innovate you know einstein solving whatever it was a special theory of relativity just completely immersed in the in the fun of trying to unravel the deep patterns of nature and then you think of <clears throat> older professors who are trying to seek tenure or trying to be published and they're seeing their work as a job it does change the the cycle you know, funnily enough i was thinking about when i first started writing for for the times uh, in my late 20s and and david chapel the sports editor back then uh when i phoned directory inquiries and got through to him and said i'd like to write some pieces <laughs> for the times he said yeah could you fax in some idea this shows how long ago it was and it was just completely intoxicating to be a published writer, and I and I completely loved it. And I think it has changed a bit, and and I think it takes a bit of discipline to try and rediscover the joy that we ought to find in the yeah, things yeah, that yeah. we do in life. And I think Luke Littler is a, and Rooney and Tiger Woods and Radicanu, they're wonderful reminders of that. Actually, because when reading your piece, it made me think a bit about when I was um, in my well, early 20s and doing um, comedy stuff with two friends. We had a sketch group. And then we all basically, all, we stopped doing it because we all got proper jobs and girlfriends and other responsibilities, you know, mortgages and whatnot. And actually, I've, in the last couple of years, gone back to doing stand-up. And this is a reminder of just doing things because you really enjoy doing them is a is a nice thing. What do you think, Mavry? Yeah, I loved, I loved Matthew's um, column on this. I think, um, I think he's right. You know, I think watching people in their element because they just enjoy doing something just for the sheer love of it rather than the paycheck and the responsibilities it also made me think because i think he's right i think it extends far beyond sport and you know i remember once here talking to uh the the writer ian wilson sort of saying he just read a book and he thought um this is this is the has written with such flair and such wisdom this must be written by sort of a 70 year old who spent his entire time there's you know at least 60 of those years reading great tomes and it turned out it was written by somebody who's about 20 and he said you would only have that kind of flair when you're and confidence when you're very young when you when you're not constantly um double thinking everything and i think mm. that that's that's part of it too i think the the fear of risks oh. and the, the you know the fear of sort of the responsibilities you carry sort of makes you overthink everything after a particular stage and i think that's quite interesting too yeah. it's just it's when it's just the the pure thought before you you've brought in all your anxieties around it that's so sorry matt can i jump yeah, in there yeah. i think i think that's so true there's a phenomenon in sport called choking in in darts it's called dartitis, dartitis. and it happens where it, it happens when you start to think exactly over, overthink so instead of hitting the ball naturally spontaneously using what's called your unconscious competence you start to think i've got to get the bat angle right and i've got to make sure it lands on the table and you're thinking so much it slows you down and you become completely stilted. And some darts players, they couldn't even release the dart because they were so analytical about what they were seeing. Wow. That kind of second-guessing what one is doing, it destroys spontaneity and it destroys certain types of uh, performance. The great polymath, Ian McGilchrist, has argued that we control these different aspects of what we do with the different hemispheres of the brain there's a lot of work to be done on really understanding what creates what what's sometimes called flow being in the zone uh, which is often an unconscious competence and it's a wonderful place to be 
It's got, it's I rarely get there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think it's an age thing. I think yeah, yeah, as you yeah, get yeah. older, you start overthinking and you start sort of, maybe it is a different part of your brain that sort of starts to uh, it, take precedence. But it even happens, I don't know, if you're, you're not playing at the top level, but if you're doing like crazy golf or having a game of pool or something <laughs> with mate, and as soon as you start, start thinking about it, it, you know, you, yes. you, you, yeah. you, yeah, it all goes. You're lost. It all goes. It all goes wrong. It all goes wrong. But, but broadcasting must be similar to this. I mean, on on the mic, you got, you got, you can't overthink, Matt. Am I right? Otherwise, <laughs> nobody, the, the, nobody would accuse me of overthinking <laughs> on the mic. Now, um, Manvin, Matthew, have you been watching ITV's Mr. Bates versus the Post Office? Well, I Matthew, haven't seen it. Matthew's been watching but... the darts. We know that. We know that much. <laughs> uh, well, I haven't uh, seen it, but I followed the. Scandal. You're very familiar with the scandal. This the the uh, Post Office scandal, which thousands of sub postmasters. And so post, post mistresses, of course, were accused of financial mismanagement. Hundreds were prosecuted and some were sent to prison. Uh, we've been following it all this week. It's obviously been back in uh, the news. But we thought we'd speak to someone who's been in exactly this position. Wendy Buffery is a former postmistress from Cheltenham uh, and joins us now on the live. Wendy, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Um, you might be sick of doing this, but um, just run us through what happened to you and the situation you are now in. Um. One morning when I was uh, doing my stop, um, I had a load of stamps appear on my um, computer, which shouldn't have been there. So I um, reversed them out and it gave me a loss of £9,000 because it presumed that I'd sold them. Um, so I checked all the paperwork and how to do it and took them out, put them back in, and then took them out again, um, like it told me to do, and that raised it to an £18,000 loss. And I thought, well, I've definitely done something wrong here. So I went through the manual and I did everything it said to do on the manual, and then I had a £36,000 <gasps> loss. Wow. So at that point, um, my life fell apart. And and you were then prosecuted for stealing. They alleged, uh, obviously, you know, we now know uh, that that's I, been I was, for, yes. for stealing £26,000. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd managed to max my credit cards out and everything and put £10,000 To try in. and pay back the money that... Yeah. It actually was was a yeah. mistake and not 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 money that you'd taken. And you and then I mean this had a devastating I mean, as anyone would imagine. It had a terrible effect on you, uh, didn't it? You, you told the public yes. inquiry, which was going on on this, that you'd you even went as far as, as thinking about taking your own life. Uh, yeah, I I went to a local hill that I usually walk on to do my thinking, and I took some tablets up there with me and some water. And um, was about to take them um, when I had a phone call from Joe Hamilton, um, one of the other sub postmistresses, and I found out that I wasn't the only one. And mm. um, we spoke for about two hours on the phone, and then I found myself back at my car, and um, I hadn't taken them, and drove home to let my husband know that we weren't the only ones. There were. A lot of other people that were um, affected. And, um, and that's so crucial, this. isn't it? And anyone who's watched the drama will have seen this. That because you kept being told by the post office and Fujitsu, oh, no, you're the only one. Nobody else has had these troubles. You, that's yeah, why I mean, you'd have I mean, felt so, so isolated. Yeah, I think they relied on the fact that post people who take on a post office are proud people. Mm. And... Um, you don't want to think you've made a mistake. Yeah. And also, I you suppose, know? as well, you're you're right in the centre of the community and the terrible backlash you then get when people think you you have been stealing something. Let's bring in Matthew and, uh, and Manfred. Matthew, this is, it strikes me that you know, the reaction, particularly by the post office, just defending their brand at all costs, regardless of the impact on people. But We see this across, you know, public and private bodies. Yeah. I, I think one might describe it as a kind of institutional narcissism. I think occasionally we see this in the NHS, where instead of doing the right thing, recognising that a mistake has been made, ensuring that patients or professionals are properly treated, they close ranks. They try and defend their reputation above all else. You saw it with the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. And, uh, I mean, it's it's harrowing to, to hear the testimony and what people have, have, have gone through. Has there been any... Um, 
proper uh, um, prosecutions of the people who behaved in this way? Has there been any redress? Well, I think I think for what, what I understand is the the um, the public inquiry is ongoing now, and then that could then some of those involved say there's enough evidence that the police then could look into it. Man, we just get your thoughts on this um, uh, just briefly because we are we are short of time, but I'm keen to bring you in. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's utterly Kafkaesque. You know, it's appalling on behalf of the the organisations to cover this up. And you've got, to, you know, the, uh, I know that the public inquiry is looking at this, but the executives at the top who allowed hmm. this, you know, lies basically to be spread and and ignored. You know, people were dying. People were, were trying to kill themselves. People died before they saw justice. I think it's absolutely horrific. But it's also just Kafkaesque, as mm. you know, a, a person in this country, you assume there are systems, and you know, you, you will get justice. And to have gone through this for twenty years, when the evidence was there, and yet just to meet denial upon denial from both the corporation and from government, is just—I mean, it's unimaginable. Um, I, I, I don't know how they I don't know how they've coped just and huge respect huge respect absolutely and Wendy you were yeah. so lucky that you got that, that call with you just finally Wendy obviously your your put your prosecution was was quashed we were talking to Kevin Hollingbrake about this earlier the post office minister have you had compensation no no you're still you're one of those still waiting yeah I've had interim payments yeah um but uh, no I've not had an offer as yet but it, i don't class it as compensation no absolutely yes to, Alan Bates was back to, yeah. to where we were before this happened it's just taking you back the giving actual, you back money that you shouldn't have lost in the first place that they've offered us for what they've done to us is less than a third of nick reed's bonus last year incredible wendy we really appreciate you sharing your, your story uh with us today that's wendy buffery there former postmistress from Cheltenham. Uh, really, and we'll we'll keep on on the story because the reaction we've had from listeners has been incredible. Manry Rana and Matthew Side there, and of course you can read the very best political analysis in the Times and the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing. This is a public service announcement. The politicians are coming for you. I just haven't met you yet. And when I get the people who've got start-up loans coming into Downing Street and telling me what they've done, taking a risk, having a punt, having a go, that pumps me up. I'll never give up. And it's very nice to see you. It's a disaster. Oh, everything. She just a sort of bigoted woman. Right? That's right. I have no doubt that the Conservative Party and the Conservative government will have five more years of work in office. Thank you for being here today. But there isn't a magic money tree that we can shake that suddenly provides for everything that people want. Am I tough enough? Uh, tough enough? Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Right, who's next? Anyone else? All good? No, no others from you. Anyway, anyone else have some questions before we get over to the media? Okay, gosh, this is very quiet. I just haven't met you yet. Ah, the perils of the politicians meeting the public. Well, when things are looking bleak in the polls, you think the media's against you and advisors are suggesting you're 
uh, need to get out and about to talk to real people. So what seems to be happening for uh, Rishi Sunak right now? We need, people need to see the real Rishi. Let Rishi be Rishi. Well, we've just heard there. David Cameron, one of his Cameron direct events. John Major on his soapbox. Ed Miliband showing his toughies, tough enough. Trees may be grilled by a nurse. Gordon Brown demonstrating the dangers of meeting uh, an actual uh, voter. And uh, Rishi Sunak there demonstrating his easy nature with uh, members of uh, the public. So now he, after being accused of being tetchy with the media last year, uh, we are told he's going to hit the road to try and convince people one voter at a time. Uh, he's in the Midlands uh, today for his first public appearance of the new year. Let's hope it goes better than when he met a homeless man. What's your name? Dean. Dean, how are you? Hungry. Hungry? Well, this, we hope we get you some good breakfast. What, what, do you have a... Are you, do you work in a business? Do you want some no, fruit? No, I'm, I'm homeless and I'm actually a homeless person. Oh, I mean, you can't, you can't help feel so, feeling sorry for them sometimes. So, will letting the public see the real Rishi Sunak help turn around his fortunes? We talked about it on this week's How to Win an Election. Here's Danny Finkelstein. So the, the, there's this thought that this all comes from this let Bartlett be Bartlett. But in fact, it comes from, from let the West, Re- from the it West comes, Reagan. Well, it, which yeah. it doesn't. It comes from let Reagan be Reagan. And let Reagan be Reagan, which was the original use of this phrase, was uh, a campaign, proposition, a campaign by the right in the Conservative Party against his more centrist advisers that Reagan should be his authentic Conservative self. Let Reagan be Reagan. The reason that I think let Ed Miliband, for example, be Ed Miliband is I think authentically Ed Miliband was well to the left of where he then decided to present himself and therefore it wasn't good advice for him. And I think also with Gordon Brown, uh, letting Gordon Brown actually be what he really was would have also moved him, you know, against, um, against for example... Uh, the, the agenda of sort of more austere spending that Alistair Darling uh, put in place. You mean so it was not good advice yeah, to, the, yeah. to him. We can hear more from Danny Finkstein, Peter Madison and Polly McKenzie on this week's edition of the How to Win an Election podcast. So today we thought we'd look back at some of the best and worst moments of politicians meeting the public. A trip down memory lane. and We'll, um, we'll speak to some of the advisers who were stood just out of shot sometimes with their head in their hands. Let's start with John Major and his soapbox. It's often the the template for leaders uh, since. Halfway through the 1992 general election campaign, John Major decided to uh, return to the style he'd learned as a young man in South London, where on Saturdays he'd regularly harangue shoppers from a soapbox near Brixton Market. When the demonstrators are pushed to one side and the ordinary people of Britain speak, I have no doubt that the Conservative Party and the Conservative Government will have five more years of work in office. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Well, obviously it worked in 1992. Less successful in 1997. Well, Hal James was political secretary to uh, John Major, joining actually in uh, in 1994 and then in the rundown to the uh, the election in 97. Morning, Hal. Good morning. Um, one of the things that, that struck me looking back at John Major on his soapbox is how actually makeshift it was. There wasn't loads of security. There weren't loads of people with pre-printed banners. It, it, it did seem like his authentic self. Yeah, no, I, I think it was. And as you said at the beginning, it, it did derive from his real behaviour. You know, back in the day when he was a kid in Brixton, he used to stand in on the corner and, 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 and shout his wares, so to speak. So I, I think this was a sort of... It, it, people did perceive it as a natural uh, 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 behaviour for him. So it wasn't as though he was stepping outside the bounds and it was makeshift i mean it was a box actually it was a it was a box from central office um that contained documents and files and um he got it happened i'm told i wasn't there of course because it was pre my time in 92 but it happened spontaneously because he had gone to um uh, i think it was in cheltenham uh, and there were a lot of people out in the street uh, jostling and uh, the cameras caught all this and he re- returned to the the sort of bus and they got a box out for him so he could stand up 
higher than the crowd around him. So it did happen. Uh, and I think people saw it happen sort of authentically. Uh, so, uh, you know, both in terms of his own behaviour and in terms of it not looking like a sort of set piece prepared political action. I think it ticked both those boxes. Um, but clearly it also, you know, it also, I think, offered... Uh, him a, a way of talking to people and talking to the media over the commentators. It frustrated him hugely that, you know, once we, you know, particularly in 97, which is sort of the period I can talk about with, with mm. more sort of personal experience, the, 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 the narrative, the media narrative, once your polls are in a certain place, once you've had a few initiatives that have sort of been launched and then stumbled and not kind of uh, done the job for you, you know, the narrative becomes everything is a sort of a, a, a fight back, everything. So you look very reactive. And, and the thing about the soapbox is it gave him an opportunity to stand up and look proactive and, and stand up and make his case directly to to the public and and in a way directly through the television cameras. I, I suppose also to as well, it, the it, I suppose also as well it was it was making a virtue of some of the public anger being seen to take yeah, particularly in, you know, in 97 even being seen to take some of the public anger. I was looking up some cutting I think it was the independent reported in 97 uh, John Major returned to the soapbox yesterday to launch his election fight back in a near riot. Um, he showed he lost, uh, lost none of his street fighting spirit, surrounded by police. When he was heckled, an empty drinks can was thrown as the scrum with the Prime Minister in the centre careered yeah. along the high street. And, and actually, yeah. there's a bit of that. And uh, actually, the next example I wanted to bring in, uh, Hal, is uh, from Ed yeah. Miliband. Uh, it was a bit later on. Uh, Ed Miliband didn't have a soapbox. <laughs> he had what well, can only really be described as a pallet. Um, uh, but, you know, all the people who stood around him were essentially sort of Labour Party supporters. It was all a bit more staged. We couldn't find a clip of him standing on his pallet. So lacking in news, was it? But uh, here he is instead uh, speaking to Jeremy Paxman in 2015 uh, during the election campaign in front of a live studio audience. You understand what the point is here. The point is people think you're just not tough enough. Well, uh, let, let me tell you. Am I tough enough? H tough enough? Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Not tough enough to stand on a, on a soapbox, though. Let's bring in... Uh, Hal James, stay there. Well, let's bring in uh, Times Radio's very own Aisha Hazarika, who worked for Ed Miliband, as well as Gordon Brown and Harriet Harman. Hi, Aisha. Hello, happy new year. Happy new year to you. Are you are you tuss enough, uh, Aisha? Hell yeah. <laughs> now, explain Ed Miliband's palette um, and the idea behind it. Clearly, tried to draw comparisons with John Major and him winning in '92, but it, it it lacked maybe that bit of spontaneity. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it, it wasn't really, I would say, born out of people sitting down going, oh, let's recreate John Major. I think it's sort of more what you said at the beginning in the intro to this piece. What politicians at some point always uh, suddenly alight upon, along with their advisors, is right, we've got to try and look authentic. We've got to try and look like we're not scared of the, the public. But the reality is, by that point in their career, particularly being a leader of a political party, they're not just scared of the public, they pretty much loathe the public as well, because the public are the people who are going to give them a hard time. And, and this very odd thing happens, where when you become a political leader, you are in this incredibly rarefied world, you have a whole team of advisors, you don't have to do anything for yourself, you're very uh, rarely alone by yourself, you have a driver, and then suddenly... With an election coming, you get switched into, right, you've now got to pretend to be a real person <laughs> and sort of engage with real people when, you know, you've not bought a coffee or done your own laundry for like the last three years, basically. So I think that's one of the reasons why this stuff always kind of jars a bit, because there is a natural inauthenticity to it because you have been living in this very sort of weird special political bubble for such a long time as we saw when when Rishi Sunak struggled with a with a card machine um let's let's keep picking through the the history books because some of these are great and, and and obviously you know sometimes you get uh, out and about people want to bend your ear and get quite cross this was uh, back in 2001 this is Sharon Storer who was the partner of an uh, the angry partner of a cancer patient confronting Tony Blair incredible on the ward, they can't do enough for the patient and then you have to be referred down to an A&E unit which was absolutely diabolical and you suffered terribly. So would you like to tell me what you're going to do to provide those people with better facilities? That's exactly what we're trying to do. I hope you do because it's absolutely appalling and if you just like to go and have a look at it then you'll find out just how terrible it really is. No, you're not very sorry because if you was you would do something about it. 
Tony over there trying to uh, placate her. Uh, who knows what he said about her afterwards? We do know what Gordon Brown said about Gillian Duffy after he met her uh, in 2010 in Rochdale. And it's very nice to see you. That's a disaster. She never have put me with up with that woman. Whose idea was that? I don't know. I can see. Let's see, I think. They're just ridiculous. They will go in. What did she say? Oh, everything. She's just a sort of bigoted woman. Right? Said she used to be a lady. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, let's, let's bring in now Mark Lucas, who is director of presentation for Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Um, Mark, is it fair to say that Tony Blair was just better with members of the public than Gordon Brown? Although we did go through exactly this period with... Uh, we are now with Rishi Sunak, where we're being told that he's so much better in person and if only he could meet everyone individually, he could turn things around. Is that is that a fair reading, Mark? I, I think so. I mean, if I had a quid for every election in which, after having tried to protect their leader for, you know, for years and years, they suddenly say, if only he could meet everybody in Britain, we would win this election massively. <laughs> That comes up every honestly. I've done I've worked in I don't know however many countries, every country it's a universal. And somehow the people around the leader or the leader themselves suddenly begin to believe that they have the secret of interaction with other human beings and that that can win them the election. And, and the problem with it is it's just not true. Uh, it's just as simple as that. You know, I mean, Gordon touched by genius, in my opinion, uh, a heart of gold, which I think few, too few people know or have seen but you wouldn't have said social interaction was his you know his forte he, he would go to an nhs visit you know at a hospital and he'd say to everyone thanks for all you do for the nhs thanks for all you do for the nhs and i've been there on more than one occasion when he thanked his own team for all they do for the <laughs> nhs as well you know so you know it's just not it's just not true that everyone can interact with uh, with the public in a in an authentic and meaningful way and I do suspect that if you can't, you shouldn't try it because I admire John Major, actually. You know, we took him apart, obviously, in 97 in the last stages. But I think there's a lot to admire about him. And I think his journey was authentic and the soapbox was an authentic expression of who he was. Actually, I was just thinking, actually, the... I was just thinking, actually, the... soapbox is a posh twerp on a soapbox, you know? I mean, it's just different, isn't it? Actually, there was something about... I don't know if you've got a clip of it. There was something authentic about Jeremy Corbyn, sort of addressing people from the top of a fire engine or leaning out of a window or something. He spent his whole life addressing sort of rabble, Mm. rabble rousing a crowd, Aisha. Yeah, I think the authenticity thing is... But you've got to do something which is comfortable. Like, Rishi Sunak would be better off just like hovering in a helicopter over towns with a sort of <laughs> megaphone. I think that's the kind of vibe we could sort of get behind. We've uh, talked a lot about uh, Labour leaders. Let's turn our attention now to some Conservative leaders. David Cameron, he did a lot of these. I remember him coming and doing uh, one at the Western Morning News when I worked there. Cameron Directs, where he'd just take any take on all comers uh, when he was leader of the opposition. Then he became, uh, P- then he became PM Direct. Here he is getting very overexcited in 2015. When I hold those receptions at Downing Street and when I get the people who've got start-up loans coming into Downing Street and telling me what they've done, often giving up a well-paid career, taking a risk, having a punt, having a go, that pumps me up. <laughs> Gives me every time. Uh, then um, Theresa May, uh, slightly more awkward uh, with members of Parliament, I think it's fair to say, not one of life's raconteurs. And uh, didn't go on brilliantly well. We interacted with uh, people on Question Time during the, was this the 2017 general election. She was asked whether she could sleep happily while NHS staff use food banks. My wage slips from 2009 reflect exactly what I'm earning today. So how can that be fair in light of what we, the job that we actually do? And I recognise the job that you do. I'm being honest with you in terms of saying that we will put more money into the NHS... But there isn't a magic money tree that we can shake that suddenly provides for everything no. that people want. And that went down really badly. And then uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson. I mean, it goes down very well when he's meeting members of the public. But often during elections, when he was running for mayor and when he was running in the general election 2019, they tried to keep him on a tighter leash, including famously hiding in a fridge to avoid ITV's Good Morning Britain in 2019. You're live on Good Morning. Why did, why did, could you talk to Piers and Susanna for me? I'll be, I'll be with you in a second. I'll be with you in a second. Yeah, I have an earpiece here in my hands, ready to go. 
Right, he's been taken inside into the freezer. He's gone into the Excuse fridge. Me. There's a bunker. It's <laughs> very heroic work, we've had mate. so far, isn't it? Well, somebody who has tried to get Boris Johnson to behave himself uh, over the years uh, is Katie Perry, a former advisor to him during his two uh, runs for London Mayor, later Director of Communications in Downing Street for uh, Theresa May. Hi, Katie. Good morning. Is that, am I right in thinking, characterising that actually during election campaigns, Boris Johnson was kept under a tight leash um, and you tried not to make him too interesting? Well, yes, because Boris Johnson would want to do media every hour of the day. And um, you'd often say, we've got a big announcement coming on Monday, so we're not going to talk about it till Monday. And then he'd meet with the journalists on Friday and tell them all about the big announcement that he was meant to be launching on Monday. So it was always quite difficult to make sure that he stuck to the kind of the plan. Uh, and what about um, Theresa May? It, I mean, does, is it fair to back her with Gordon Brown in terms of her slight awkwardness for members of the public? Yeah, I mean, very much like your what previous people said, that actually in private, she was much more engaging. She actually had a really good sense of humour, would crack a few jokes. One on one was much more um, uh, personable. But the minute the camera went on, she really didn't like it. And it was almost as if she would have been a brilliant prime minister in 1930, 1940, but just didn't understand what the media wanted from her. Yeah. and didn't understand why the members of the public wanted to hear more about their prime minister that they might not know that much about. And it was always a bit of an uphill struggle getting her to do the media that we wanted her to do, not just the set pieces, you know, what the updates, the things that she might have done when she was previously Home Secretary, but the more personable interviews, the things about what makes her tick, you know, what her private life's like, um, what does she like doing, the things that people want to know about their prime ministers. She just didn't want to go there. So go on then, we've got, what, a good 30 years worth of, uh, of political history covered uh, across our full panel here. What would be your advice to... To Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer, because it's interesting, I suppose if you're running to be lead, you're the leader of the opposition, you want to look more prime ministerial, while the prime minister wants to look less prime ministerial, more like a man of the people, possibly. Um, let's ask you all then, your advice for what should Rishi Sunak do? Howell James, first of all, former political secretary to John Major, what's your advice to Rishi Sunak? Be less manicured, be less controlling. I, I think, you know, where, when you're in the place that he is in the polls and in the public perception, I think he's he can afford to take risks now. And I think if he goes around and does public meetings with tame Tory audiences asking slightly flat, safe questions, it won't work for him. He needs to be bolder. And I think if, if you know, I... I I'd encourage him to get out and about, and I would encourage him to take on all comers. Um, uh, Alistair Campbell, uh, you know, the, the famous phrase, you know, time to take a kicking. There is, uh, there is a moment where taking on difficult questions and having, uh, you know, things that may not immediately look very attractive, and, uh, you know, when they're relayed on the six o'clock news, the public give you a bit of credit, you know, for, for going out and taking on some arguments and putting your case uh, in difficult environments. And uh, it, it seems to me that uh, uh, avoid uh, the too manicured, too tame environment and, and go out and uh, uh, and accept that you're going to have to get a bit punchier and, and take on some of the tougher issues. I wonder actually whether it would be better, because they put out some videos over, the, over Christmas, didn't they? One of him sort of buying Christmas snacks or something. But Number 10 filmed that and put it out and actually letting other people film it. Uh, and then, it, you know, it becomes more, you know, goes viral on its own, might make it seem a bit more authentic. Mark Lucas, uh, former director of presentation for Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. What's your advice to Rishi Sinek? Yeah, I mean, Alistair used to call um, that idea the masochism strategy um, to take all the hits out in public and fully. And that works if your candidate can do that. But can Rishi do that? You know, I've seen his awkward smile. I've seen it when he's been challenged on interviews. And he just sort of freezes, really, and looks really awkward. And I think a series of scenarios where he freezes and looks really awkward and asks, you know, homeless people about investment strategies is just not going to win in the election. So I would say if they must have tested this, but if it's not going to work, don't do it, I would say, you know, <laughs> although I hope they do because I've got a feeling it'll be a disaster. I suppose it also goes back to the fact he's very still quite new into politics. You know, he was only elected in, what, 2015. He was selected in, I think, the first seat he ran. I might have got that wrong. Um, you know, a safe Tory seat. He hasn't done sort of 20 years of uh, pavement politics and uh, uh, and all that, you know, he's quickly in the cabinet. Um, uh, uh, Aisha, um, given all of your experience from, from Gordon Brown to Ed Miliband to Harriet Harman, what's your advice to Richie Sunak, apart from <laughs> shouting out of the door of a helicopter? <laughs> 
Well, look, uh, the, the the masochism strategy that both um, Howell and Mark have, have talked about, I, I, I think that only works, as Mark says, if you've got a brilliant performer. I actually worked on Tony Blair's 2005 election campaign when antisocial behaviour and, and law and order was a big issue. And I remember we took him to one event. It was like a councillor state and everyone was absolutely fizzing with anger about the state of antisocial behaviour. And Tony Blair just stood there and took it. He took absolutely loads of people, absolutely sort of, you know, giving him a good sort of kicking. But then at the end of it, took them all on at the end of it they all lined up to sort of shake his hand now I suspect that's not going to happen with a Rishi Sunak strategy and I'm afraid I think things are so bad for Rishi Sunak if I were them I'd probably hide I'd get that fridge um, out of (laughs) steep storage and I'd actually just get him to do set pieces I think at this stage it's too dangerous it's too high risk and the thing about getting someone else to film it that can go so badly wrong i don't know if you've ever remember a kind of um, background documentary that vice did about jeremy corbyn where it basically oh, yes. had jeremy corbyn's leaders going just let him fail on his own terms and things like that so i think those things tend to go viral if i was them i would just concentrate on bread and butter stuff and just do safe set i would be very very safe at this point oh there we are uh, but katie perry your advice um, to uh, to Rishi Sunak? Uh, I think Aisha's right that um, that it should be quite controlled uh, and safe uh, safe opportunities. I don't think that Rishi, the more that we see of Rishi uh, on TV, is going to suddenly remove the dial at all. Um, he's got to also play to the things that people think he's good at. Uh, and they, they are things that drive people mad in government in terms of attention to detail or making sure he wants to deliver on some of the things that he's promised. Uh, and so, you know, play to the strengths rather than trying to make out something you, you're not. There is nothing worse than seeing a politician trying to fake it, fake it till you make it, trying to be all things to all people that they're not. So sometimes it's better to just admit that you're not brilliant at everything and focus on what you are good at and lean into that a little bit more. You know, when when politicians make out they support one football team and forget and get in the wrong one, when they you know, say they like things, but they don't actually, when they get put on the spot, he's just better off being more authentically Rishi. We might think that that has some flaws, but actually he's better off playing to that. Well, it'll be interesting to see what impact all of that has on the voters. And we'll find out next week in our latest Times Radio focus group. Asking people who voted Tory last time, now saying they're going to vote Labour, what they make of Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer's New Year relaunches. Don't forget, you can get in touch with me by emailing matt at times.radio or tell us what you think about the podcast by reviewing it wherever you listen to it. If you listen to this on Apple, stick a review on there, lovely. Or better still, post it on your social medias, tell your friends to listen to politics without the boring bits. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.